We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, Primarily, we'll be focusing on our verse of the year, which is actually two verses. Uh, We'll we'll be in John 13, verses 34 and 35. It's become a tradition here at St. Andrews for the elders of our church to select a verse each year for us to really focus on, sort sort of drive home. And we'll preach on this verse several times over the course of this year. And just to sort of set the table for us this morning, I want to give you a little bit of context. Okay, coming out of Easter last week, understanding that the reason for the hope that we have, the reason that we are even here this morning, is because of the reality of the empty tomb and the fact that Jesus Christ took in that breath, having been systematically uh, beaten, tortured, executed, and buried. He is in a tomb and he breathes in to his lungs a breath and with that conquers death. By his life, he conquered death. And while we may celebrate Easter once a year, I'm, 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 I'm willing to go along with that. I'm, I'm willing to be okay with celebrating Easter once a year. We dress up a little fancier. We get out in the yard and hunt for candy and that sort of thing. I'm okay with that, but we are Easter people here. That is what we do. We, don't need, we cannot miss this. Jesus is just as risen today as he was last week. He is just as risen today as he was last week. He's not perpetually resurrecting. He is eternally resurrected. And that is good news. Well, that's good news for us. We find our passage this morning in a section of the fourth gospel we call the Upper Room Discourse. This is John's recording of the last meeting of Jesus with his disciples prior to his arrest. And so we ought to be able to understand that there is some, that there is some deep importance here. Uh, John devotes a great deal of space to this last meeting of Jesus and his disciples. In fact, over a quarter of his entire gospel is devoted to this one night. We see, just before this passage, the washing of the disciples' feet. And even in the next couple of chapters, we're going to see two of the I Am sayings. In fact, we'll see him saying, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he follows that in chapter 15 by saying, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. So we have to understand that this is not just a little get-together of some friends in Jerusalem. This is not a normal Thursday night in Jerusalem. They are celebrating the Passover together, the last true Passover that was ever going to take place. And Jesus is instituting now the Lord's Supper. Okay, so this is not a normal day. And when we read our passage this morning and consider the timing of it, when we consider the place of it in Jesus' life, we ought to feel that weight on some level. So let's, let's get into it. John 13, we'll actually begin in, <clears throat> in verse 31, and we'll go through verse 35. When he had gone out, that's Judas. Sorry, I got three words in and had to stop. We, that's Judas. Judas is, is now out of the room. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we're going to need you uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to need you to come and and speak to us. God, I pray that you would would really send your Holy Spirit here and get me out of the way. God, if it's my stammering tongue that we're depending on, we're in a lot of trouble. And so I pray that you would come and do work here among us today. I pray that by your grace and, and by your mercy, you'll come here and minister to us as only you can. And I pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Judas has, he's left the building. It's always been such a profound reality to me that that Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. Um, That he took the lowly posture of a servant. That That he grabbed this man's dusty and dirty feet and he washed them. The one who was going to betray him, and and really in just a few moments, the one who's going to turn on him for just a little bit of cash. But this is Jesus. You you never find him in a position of hypocrisy. He's never going to be that guy who says, do as I say and pay no attention to what I actually do. That's, That's not him. He's not that guy. And if we trace the ministry of Jesus, just consider from the Gospel of Luke, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to go fast. We see in Luke 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, We see Jesus say, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Think about that now. Just just for a second. That's Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So I don't know how many of you do prayer lists. But I'm guessing the top of your prayer list isn't the guy who's being mean to you. Jesus says it should be. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. By the way, he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. In verse 29, he says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So what he said is, that guy took your jacket, you give him your shirt. He took your jacket, give him your shirt. Now consider Jesus' teaching in Luke 10. It's in Luke 10 that a lawyer comes to him and asks Jesus what he must do to to be saved. And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And here's the thing. The guy answers beautifully. He, He knows the Old Testament, okay? He knows the law, and he responds by actually quoting Scripture. If Jesus asks you a question and you answer with his word, that's a good answer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he knows Deuteronomy 6 and he knows Leviticus 19. Now listen, that's a strong answer. And this is just pure conjecture on my part, but I can't help but think the other disciples are standing there just thinking, wow, this guy's good. Because we get the answer wrong all the time. Like we never, Jesus asks us questions, we never get it right. This guy shows up for one little session, he just nails it. But there was a problem. Do you remember what the problem was? There's a problem. He gives a great answer, but there's a problem. Because even after Jesus tells him that he got the answer right, tells him he answered correctly, the guy says, and who is my neighbor? So here we have a guy who who knows the law, who can even quote the law, but has no idea how the law is to be applied to real life. He knows it, but he doesn't know what to do with it. It's like a I can't help but think of like a small child out in their yard following their dad around, uh, watching their father work with tools. I still remember helping my dad in the yard as a child. He, he'd cut down a tree or something. That was a fun activity in our house on a Saturday. Dad just go pick a random tree, cut it down, and now we've got work to do. And so he'd, we'd be out in the yard. He'd have me cleaning up all the like branches and pine cones, all the debris and stuff. 
he'd give me a little rake or a, or a pitchfork. And, while, and listen, while I knew what they were, I didn't really know what to do with them. You know what I mean? Because like a pitchfork can be a tool, but it can also be like a weapon. You know, it, to like fend off the advancing army who's clearly approaching from the south in our yard, right? I mean, if you're a child, this is the way your mind works. And so I knew what the tool was, but I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. And my version of helping looked a lot more like playing. Um, by God's grace, I had a patient father and one who, who would show me what to do with those tools, how to properly apply them to real life. And just like a compassionate father, seeing that the man needed to know something more, Jesus gave him the parable of the Good Samaritan. We see that everyone, every human, every man and woman is our neighbor. And in that parable, just like Jesus is teaching in Luke 6, it's the sworn enemy. It's the cultural nemesis. It's the Samaritan who stops to help the fallen man after his own countrymen had passed by on the other side. It's just like Jesus painting a picture and showing, here is the law and here is how it applies. And in the upper room, in this room that we find our passage this morning, Jesus is tangibly demonstrating this ethic that he had taught throughout his ministry. There is... There is no hypocrisy in this man, not even a speck. He never asked anyone to do that which he was unwilling to do himself. And so he has washed their feet. They've had supper. Judas is out of the room. He's beginning the act of betrayal. And now Jesus has some words for the eleven. We see verses 31 through 33. Jesus is talking about glory there. That the cross, he, he sees the cross. The cross is, is going to bring him glory. And through him, uh, through his obedience to the Father's plan, it's going to bring glory to the Father. He's unpacking for them the reality that he is going away. And where he is going, they will not be able to come. And then we read these words. Look at verse 34. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, stop there. A new commandment. That's what he says. A new commandment I give to you, and this commandment is to love one another. Now, that doesn't sound new at all. Remember the lawyer from the Gospel of Luke. We just, I just talked about him a second ago. Don't forget about him. Remember, he even knew that you were supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, granted, he didn't know who his neighbor was, but if he ever figured it out, he would he would know what to do. So what is Jesus talking about when he says that this is a new commandment? And reading through a couple of commentaries on this passage, one of them, Mark Johnston, makes this assertion. He says, when he says that he is giving them a new commandment, he is not suggesting that this is something they had never heard of before. Rather, here was something they had never seen on this scale before. Leon Morris, another commentator, adds this, Love itself is not a new commandment, but an old one. The new thing appears to be the mutual affection that Christians have for one another on account of Christ's great love for them. Again, we've, we've seen this love on display in the washing of the feet and, and just for honesty, his patience with them throughout his entire three years of walking around with them. And we'll see this type of love completed on the cross. And that's why the next words of verse 34 are so important. It, it really can't be overstated because I, want, I need you to hear this. He's not painting a 21st century picture of an ambiguous type of love. He's not talking about this common idea that we have 
all around us. This pervasive idea of love that our society has grabbed hold of where love really means little more than preference. You see, in our world, in the world that we find ourselves in today, people, people love, okay, they, they use that word, love, for everything. For everything. Uh, we do it with all sorts of things. We do it with food. Listen, this, will probably, this is probably going to reveal a little more of my heart than I'm comfortable with, um, but, but we're going to go there anyway because I've got it written down. When, when, it, when it comes to food, there are few things on this planet that I enjoy as much as I enjoy the grilled steak tacos from San Jose. And I'm not talking about like exotic San Jose. I'm talking in Ballantine, San Jose. I mean, the, hot, the best thing about Ballantine is the Walmart. And that's where I like to get tacos from. I'm a cheap date. And I know, I know I'm breaking the cardinal rule by talking about food before lunch. But, but I'm serious. When you taste, <clears throat> when you taste the grilled steak. You're, you're, you're getting there with me. And, and it's got that cheese on it. The cheese is melted. Even the shredded lettuce, you don't mind being on there. for a, And you wrap that in a soft taco shell. When you bite into that, if that doesn't stir up something in your heart that ultimately leads into doxology and to praise, I'm going to be a little concerned about you. Um, And it's really to my shame, I fully admit this, it's to my shame that I admit that to you today. But it's also to my shame that the word I typically use to describe my affection for those tacos is the same word that I would use to describe my affection for, say, my wife. Now, it's obviously not the same thing. I I genuinely love my wife. But in our world today, The saturation of the word love is such that we love our Lord, we love our spouse, we love our kids, we love our church, and we love our tacos. I've I've actually had men, this is not a, and men here, some of you are going to be like, he's talking about me. I've had men in this church, men that are friends of mine, young men, old men, tell me how much they love a particular type of sock. Man, I love these things. When you wear, my feet don't sweat in them. I mean, you put, they don't get bunched up in your toes. You know, I can go all day in these socks. The word love has been hijacked in the English language. And when Jesus says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, he follows it with, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's why it's a new commandment. Just as I have loved you. The word there in the original language is agape. And agape has a very specific meaning. And it's typically translated something like unconditional love. The, the other two words prominently used in the Greek language for love are eros and philia. Eros is to know that physical, that sensual, even desire and longing. And, and philia is that brotherly love. It's where we get the name Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. But the word we're dealing with here is this agape love. Many of, you, many of you parents, especially parents of young children, might have the children's storybook Bible, the Jesus storybook Bible that was written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. In fact, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to baptize some, some of our covenant children here. And when we do that, we give those families a copy of that Bible. Laurie and I use that book with our children <clears throat> most, e- most evenings. It's a great 
great resource for teaching your children. And in that book, she describes the love of God. It's almost like the chorus in that book. It's the resounding theme of that book. This agape love, this love of God is is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Now that's what Jesus is commanding here. That's the type of love Jesus is commanding. We need to keep in mind that this isn't just a suggestion. I'm saying the word command. I need to make sure that you don't hear command and think it's a good idea. He's saying, I command this of you. And the end result is that the world will see this love that you display for one another and, that, and they'll know that you are my disciples. James Montgomery Boy says that discipleship is giving oneself wholeheartedly to Jesus. Discipleship is giving oneself wholeheartedly to Jesus. I'm willing to say that there may be longer and even wordier definitions of what discipleship is, but I think that one sums it up pretty well. The early church lived out this ethic of discipleship. In, in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, the Apostle Paul commends the church in Macedonia, saying, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord. First to the Lord, and even before that, in Acts 2.42, Luke describes the early church saying they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves. Even contemporary definitions of that word devote say to give all or a large part of one's time or resources to a person, activity, or cause. Okay, so wives, wives want a devoted husband. And likewise, husbands want a devoted wife. It's the idea of forsaking all others. Earlier in the Gospel of John, in John 8, 31, we see Jesus describing discipleship saying, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. To abide is to remain with, to stand by, to follow, to keep to, hold to, conform to. You know, in a Christian wedding service, in a Christian wedding service, the bride and groom will stand there and we take these vows that say we promise to remain in plenty and in want and joy and in sorrow and sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. That's abiding. That even when it goes bad, I'm there. Even when it's not convenient, I'm there. That's abiding. And this, abiding in Christ's word, according to him, is a mark of discipleship. And what Jesus tells us here in John 13, 35 is that not only will the world see this, but they'll see it and by it, they'll understand something far, far greater. This love for one another, this agape love shown within the body of Christ to one another will serve as a visible apologetic to the world, not only of our love for each other, but of the fact that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. The horizontal relationships between Christians will testify to the vertical relationship between Christians and Christ, between creation and creator. Follow me, follow me down this road for just a second. This is really just a side note, but I have to go there. Humans, you all, man and woman, were created to relate. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that's where we came from. Okay? There may be a thousand other questions that you would ask, but ultimately we land at the reality that man was created by God and for a purpose. 
And before sin entered the world, before, before Adam messed it all up, this relationship, this vertical relationship, was one of, of union, was one of devotion, it was open communion. There's that great verse in Genesis 2.25 that says, And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, they had nothing to hide on a vertical level. And therefore, they had nothing to hide on a horizontal level between one another. No shame. No shame. It was perfect. Now, you and I find ourselves in a far different set of circumstances, don't we? Because of the sin of our first representative head, because of Adam, we find ourselves today in the state of sin. And we see the effects of this all around us. You really don't even have to be that observant um, to see them. They are everywhere. And nowhere, nowhere are the effects of sin seen more clearly than in our horizontal relationships today between, between each other. Even Jesus saw this. He wasn't blind to this. He wasn't immune to this either. Even in the next few verses, if you keep going after our passage, we see him describing how one of his closest followers, how one of his closest followers was going to deny that he even knew him. In verse 38, directly after our passage today, we see Jesus telling Peter that the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus understood the catastrophic effects that sin had unleashed on our relationships with each other. He got that. Don't ever think that you're the only one who's been wounded. Jesus had his closest friends. One of them right now has betrayed him. The other one's getting ready to deny him. He understood what you know to be our reality. And this is how the world will know that you are Christians. This is what Jesus is going to say. This is what he's constantly taught, effectively, that while it might be this way in the world, that while it might be this way in the world, he's not denying that it exists. Yes, this is how it is, but it will not be so with you. It will not be so with you. Jesus is looking at the fallen world. He's seeing it with unveiled eyes. He's seeing as it truly is, and it broke his heart. And he's here in the upper room with his disciples. The cross is in view, and he's painting this picture of a redeemed community living out the love that they have been shown by him to each other. This is how the world will know that you are Christians, this outward expression, this visible expression will be a greater apologetic than any argument, than any book, than any conference speaker. Listen, doctrine matters, okay? What we believe matters. I am, I am for doctrine. I am taking classes right now to make sure that when I get up before you, I am rooted, that I am, that I am grounded in sound doctrine, I am studying diligently right now to be sure that when I come before you, I'm grounded in what is right and true. And what I'm telling you is that if your doctrine doesn't spill over into doxology, into praise, and ultimately express it in love, in obedience to Christ, and love for his people, you've missed on something. You have missed on something. And this apologetic will cause the world to take notice. In his book, the Mark of the Christian, Francis Schaeffer, says this, In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. Okay, now we need to consider that for just a second. 
the reality, the reality is that the Bible, uh, the truth, the word of God is public domain. We don't own it. it. It stands on its own. Now, my Bible, I think, says it was printed in China, which is about as ironic as it can get, okay? They'll produce it. They just don't want them to read it. Um, it's just the craziest thing in the world to me, but this is not some secret. It's not some underground clandestine work of divine speech that you have to have a special card to get hold of. You've never had to show an ID card to buy a Bible. So the world can have it. It is there for them. In fact, we have a mandate, a commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And as we saw in John 8, it's abiding in God's word that makes you a disciple. So you don't have to show an ID card. If you can get on a computer, this is reality, if you can get on a computer on planet Earth, you can have every version of the Bible that is available right at your fingertips. So in his word, Jesus has spoken to, he's told the world, this is how you'll know they're my people. You judge for yourselves. And so for me, it's, <laughs> I'll, I'll do me. It's as if Jesus is looking at the world and saying, you judge for yourselves if Adam is a Christian. You look at how he shows his love for other Christians and you decide if he's genuine. Now, that's a bit frightening. And the remaining traces of Pharisee that are still in me kind of want us to organize some little projects so I can be really nice to Christians so people will see that and think, oh, man, he's awesome, right? Like, isn't that what we, we just organize something to make ourselves look really good? That is not what Jesus is talking about here. That is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about trying to show how good we are. This isn't some call to works-based righteousness. This is Christ telling us that when we live in the body of Christ, as the body of Christ, showing love for each other, as he has loved us, the world will notice and the verdict will be rendered. Turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. This is a passage that many of you might be familiar with. There's a solid chance that, it, that at some point you've been in a wedding and heard this. The little banner over the top of mine, uh, of the top of my passage says, The way of love. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to be- begin with verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Hear that last verse one more time. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. If we are called to love one another, 
called to love one another as Christ has loved us, then we need to consider what love actually looks like. And beginning in verse 4, when I read this, I should be able to substitute my name wherever I see the word love. And so it would read like this. Adam is patient and kind. Adam does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Adam bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me ask you, did you substitute your name? Like when we were reading through that the first time, or even when I just put my name, did you, did you substitute your name in there? Did it cause you to sort of take inventory of you? If you're like me, it's convicting. If you're like me, and listen, I really, I don't wish that on anybody. (laughs) But if you're like me, it's terribly humbling, painfully humbling to see my failings in love. And even reading that in front of people who know me, people who have spent time with me and seen me in both peaks and valleys of life, it's, it's crushing almost. And that's because I fall short, so short. But there's a name that we can put in that place. There's a name that we can insert into 1 Corinthians 13 without running the risk of being a liar. Because listen, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And he shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus sees us as we are. He sees the hidden recesses of our hearts. The the places where we hide our pride. The places we conceal our arrogance. He sees our inner workings of our being. And insists on having anything, and really everything, our way. He knows that. He knows how we harbor resentment and how irritable it makes us. And according to the Bible, it's with that view of us, a right and true view of you and I, that he died for us. See, Jesus didn't die for some future version of you. He didn't die so that you could go and clean yourself up and get yourself spotless and then come to him. He died for the sinner. He died for the sinner. He died for the one that according to Ephesians 2.13 was far off. And he died that by his blood you might be brought near. That you might be brought near. This is the love of Christ and this is the love that we are called to in this new commandment. And when the world sees this type of love on display in us, the world sees Christ. Are we going to do that perfectly? No. No, of course not. There will be times that we fail in love toward one another. We're going to have about 500 people trying to get out of this parking lot in 10 minutes. Odds are you don't get out of the parking lot before you fail in this. I'm just pointing that out. Somebody's going to pull up as you're trying to back out and you're going to lose it. This will be, somebody's going to get to the table before you at lunch, whatever. It's, it's coming. 
Pride will rear its ugly head and we'll forget that we are the ones who are called to love in an, in an active sense, that we're called to give love in an active sense, not just receive it in a passive sense. We're fine if people want to love us. That's fine, yeah. No, we're called to give love. We're going to fail. That's going to happen. And at that moment, we don't wallow in self-pity. We don't stay maligned in doubt, but in that moment, we run to Christ. We run with him. We run to him with reckless abandon. Throw ourselves on his grace and the mercies that are new, that are promised as new with each day. And we ask for his forgiveness. And when we demonstrate this love, showing the world that we are his disciples, we also show show the world who Christ is. We show the world who Christ is. In chapter 17, later, during the same time with his disciples, Jesus prays this as part of his high priestly prayer. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you hear that last part? so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It is not enough for the world to know that we are disciples of Jesus. They need to know who Jesus is. And when we demonstrate this love of Christ to one another, we are showing the world that Jesus is the one sent by God to redeem this fallen world. When we love one another as Christ loved us, we're showing the world our Savior. We're showing the world, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is what this world needs to see. That's what this world is groaning to see. Because while it may be that way in the world, Jesus says, it will not be that way with you. So what are we we waiting for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know, you know where I fail. God, the truth is, you know where all of us fail. God, it's by your grace that we come to you. It's by the work of your Holy Spirit that we even dare to approach you, that we would even look for you. God, I pray that in this body, I pray that when people see this church family, what they'll say is, man, that's a people. That's the people who not only love their Lord, they actually love each other. And I pray that that will be the apologetic that we give this community. Lord, do your work among us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.